0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning. Nice to be uh, in the room with some of you. If you're online with us, so glad that you're with us as well. It's just, uh, man, it's a little cooler today, so it's not so hot. Although if you're in this room, you'd never know because we crank it. So that I'm comfortable. That's really why it's always freezing in here is because I run hot. But if you're at home, it feels probably all right at home because you're setting the thermostat, not me. Uh, but we're glad you're with us. Would you grab your Bibles if you brought them with you? If you have one at home, or you can open a phone or a tablet. First Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to spend our morning. We are going to finish off this chapter. Uh, First Corinthians 10. Uh, and uh, you can open a phone or a tablet. First Corinthians 10. You can Google search. The English standard version is the version we're on uh as well. So uh just for your awareness. Uh, one of the problems that uh we have as a church with uh kind of how we preach. We preach through books of the Bible. Um, and, and so uh, right now we're right in the middle of 1 Corinthians, but one of the problems that can arise preaching through uh these these books, these letters, uh, is that they're not really meant to be broken up into 40 sermons, like 40 sermons over the course of a year. That's not really how what Paul intended. Like he intended for this. This letter to be read in its entirety to the church, like at once. And so sometimes what happens is that we end up spending multiple weeks on a certain topic or something like that, um, that that uh, that feels like, well, you could probably could handle that in one week. Well, that's just what we've done. The last five weeks, uh, we have been in kind of a smaller section within the larger scope of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 are really one uh, movement specifically on food sacrificed to idols, which I know is just like the burning passion of everybody. Everybody's heart here is like, is the food sacrificed to idols good or bad for me? Uh, This is an interesting passage. So I want to, I want to do a little bit of, recap so that we understand the end of first Corinthians 10, because I think Paul brings it all home. Uh, but, uh, you have to understand what he's trying to get at culturally. If you're going to get today's passage. So back in, in chapter eight, verse one, Paul said now concerning food, offered to idols that's the setup for these three chapters and and so let me give us the context again because again i don't think we have a category for this um so like this week i was at d group with uh some of you guys in this room actually uh and we went to this cookout and uh we were eating grilled chicken and uh grilled sausage which was deli- delightful and kevin our, our leader he he said to me hey don't worry chris it's from costco it wasn't sacrificed to idols and I'll tell you what, my first thought wasn't, are you sure? Like, I don't know what Costco God they could have sacrificed it to, but that was not my first thought, right? Like we don't even have a category for meat sacrificed to idols. There is no such thing in, my, in our minds. But if you were in first century Corinth and you went to a cookout, you would have been questioning whether that meat was sacrificed to an idol or not. That's how normative this would have been. So you have to remember in Corinth, the whole culture is polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods, and they, in fact, worshipped multiple gods. They would go to different temples, worshipping different gods in their faith. And so all over the city, there are temples to different Greek gods. And in the temples, inside of those temples, are wood or stone or metal carved objects called idols that represent those gods, that's the world they are living in. So Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite and Poseidon, like many gods, that's how they lived. That's how they worshiped. And they believed that the temple. The temples for those gods were the place where the God would intersect with our world. And so the Corinthians, they would go to those temples making sacrifices, animal sacrifices, like meat sacrifices to curry favor with those gods. That's the world that they're living in. Now, often there was meat left over. We covered this a few weeks ago. Often there was meat left over and it would be sold in the marketplace at a discounted rate. Like it was cheaper meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And and this is what Paul is addressing in these chapters. He's addressing the question that that church was wrestling with. Is it okay for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to Poseidon? Is that okay or is it not? And Paul answered that question with a resounding yes. It is okay. It's okay if you eat that meat. It's just meat. That's what he said. It's just meat, unless, he adds this caveat, unless that meat might become a stumbling block to a friend or a neighbor or a fellow believer. And then if that would be a stumbling block to somebody, then abstain from it. That's what he said. But the meat itself is cool. Meat's cool. Eat the meat. Enjoy the meat. Have the meat unless it's a stumbling block to others. But then there's this whole deeper thing and other thing that he is uh, addressing, not the meat uh, specifically, but the feasts, the temple feasts where that meat was sacrificed. And if you remember, Paul, he planted this church like five years before he's writing this letter. And when he planted the church, he stayed there for about 18 months and then left to go plant other churches. So we're talking like three years After he has stopped being the pastor, the senior pastor of, of, you know, first Corinthians Baptist church or whatever, like he left there, he went to Ephesus, planted another church, and now he is circling back with them. And here's what has been happening. Certain Christians in this Corinthian church are going back to the temples. And they're essentially saying, hey, we know the truth. Like we're Christians. We know the truth that Jesus is the only God. There's only one God. There's not all these many gods. It's just one God. So there's nothing wrong with the temple. Right? There's nothing. The idols are nothing. The meat is cheap. So we can just go and do it. We can just partake. And Paul today is going to cap all of this off and talk about what's really going on behind the temple feasts. So most boring introduction ever, but now you're caught back up. Okay, here we go. Chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We ended with that passage last week. Run away from idols. Run away from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, Paul, he's beginning this section, uh, trying to cap off the whole, the whole uh, meat sacrifice to idols section by talking about the Lord's Supper. He starts talking about the Lord's Supper and the the word that he uses, if you see it in her text, he calls it a participation with Christ. That word participation is really important because in the Greek, it's the word koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word, and it means to participate or or to fellowship with or, or to commune. Actually, that's why we sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, It's participation with Christ, okay? It's this koinonia between us and Jesus. And we're gonna actually, in chapter 11, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna talk at length about communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. But here's what Paul's saying today. Paul is saying that when we take the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do, we're gonna do this in a few minutes. When we take the Lord's Supper There is some sort of spiritual transaction taking place. Now, this can be taken taken way too far. Historically, theologically, this can be taken too far. As this can be seen in the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of transubstantiation, like that, that, you can take that too far. But also, especially in evangelicalism, we can take this way too lightly. We can take communion way too lightly where the Lord's Supper is ignored or undervalued or not practiced at all. Maybe once a quarter, once a year, even in some churches. Um, or it can be made to be only a symbol. If, this is not a, a snack. It's not just bread and wine. It is actual, something is happening. It's, it's fellowship. You are fellowshipping. You are you are koinonia. With Christ, you're participating in the body and blood. Now, he brings this up because he wants to connect that koinonia, that fellowship, that participation with what's going on in this meat sacrifice to idol in these in these these temple feasts. So he's going to do that starting in verse 18. He says this, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He's talking about the Old Testament that, yes, when you eat the sacrifice meat, you are participating in that sacrifice. He then says, uh, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate or partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he, I think Paul takes it like he he, he adds some intense language here. He starts talking about demons the cup of demons, not a cup of noodle. It's like a cup of demons, like same thing, just with demons, right? The cup of demons, the table of demons. We don't talk about demons a lot in kind of modern evangelicalism because it just feels weird and like spooky. But 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 he says you you coenania. He uses the same word. You participate with demons, and then he says, "Hey, is is the food sacrificed to idols anything?" Of course, no. He says, no, but but I don't want you fellowshipping with demons. Here's the point. The food is not the issue. The food wasn't the problem. It's what's behind the food that was the problem. There's nothing wrong with the meat. Idols aren't even real. That's what he says, right? He's like, is an idol anything? He says, no. It's just wood. It's just stone it's just metal it's carved it's not real there are not other gods paul is not a polytheist he doesn't believe that there are other gods he doesn't worship multiple gods he's not even what we call an, a henotheist polytheists worship multiple gods a henotheist believes that there's one god that they worship but then they believe that there are are in fact other gods You just only worship one. That's neither uh, Paul's belief, nor the Hebrew, nor the Christian belief. The gods aren't even gods. They're not real, is what he's saying. So, So then what does it mean when Paul says, I do not want you to be participating with demons? See, Paul, I think his arguments assume that although the idols are only objects made from inanimate materials, They still represent a reality that is directly opposed to God. I'll put it like this while idols aren't real, demons are. They are very real. There's one sense in which idols are nothing, right? They're nothing. They're just wood. They're just metal. They're nothing. They're trinkets. But in another sense, idols are something. or or what they represent is actually something they're demonic. So Paul, while denying the existence of those gods, of those pagan gods, he still affirms the reality of dangerous spiritual powers that are the enemies of God. And that's Paul's first point. I'll put it up on the screen. But his first point is flee idolatry. That's what he means when he says flee, flee idolatry, run away from those idols that may be nothing on the surface, but beneath the surface are actually demonic. He says, get out of there, run from those things. Now we have to ask ourselves 2000 years later, like, how do we apply this? What does that mean? What does flea idolatry mean? And so I would say there is a literal version of this and a metaphorical version for us to apply. And there is a literal version, okay? So for those of you who are sacrificing cows in a temple, stop it. There's a literal version here, like save the goats, stop your animal sacrifices. If you're partaking in that, man, we got to have a conversation. That's true. But, But then seriously, There are temples of sorts in our city. There is demon worship of sorts in our city. There are psychic readings. There are new age spiritualities. There are false religions and sects and cults. I mean, this is not simply an ancient problem. I mean, the question, are those things real? Well, in one sense, no. We, We know that they're not, but... But in another sense, there are real, dark, evil, spiritual realities that are warring against us. Are there temples? Are there places in our city where where they believe that the physical and the divine, the spiritual intersect? I think there are. Some of you have been to those places. Some of you have been saved out of those kinds of places. And as Christians, we might be like, well, yeah, but that's not even real, right? I know Jesus, so I'm okay, right? And it's like, yeah, you are. And those places are kind of not real, but they kind of are. Paul says, hey, don't go drinking the cup of demons. Just because you're free, don't go... Eating at the table of demons. Don't go coin and knee Don't don't participate with demons. You can't do both. You can't drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons. Flee idolatry. That's his first point this morning. So there is this like literal application. Okay, flee that. Idolatry. But then there's also a metaphorical level uh, that we find ourselves in often as Christians. And, And so, idolatry, I'll just simply define it like this idolatry is worship of any unworthy object. It is worship of any unworthy object. So, flee idolatry actually is metaphorical as much as it is literal. Anything that captures your heart and pulls you away from Jesus is an idol. Anything. Uh theologian William Stringfellow said this. I thought this was helpful. He said, idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture, no less now than yesterday. Indeed, it might be argued that contemporary Western man is more enslaved to idols than his supposedly less civilized counterpart, precisely because he is presumably less ignorant about the world in which he lives and because his favorite idols are the familiar realities of daily life, religion, work, money, status, sex, patriotism. Anything that can really take your heart away from worshiping God alone and pull you to another direction is an idol. And there are real, evil, spiritual realities behind those idols. Flee from your literal idols, but flee also from metaphorical idols as well, don't flirt, right? Don't dabble. No, no, no. You flee. You cannot participate. With the cup of God and the cup of demons. So that's Paul's summation. Okay, the food sacrificed to idols—it's just food. It's just food. But the realities behind the food—you got to get away from them, right? Money—it's just money. There's nothing inherently evil about money or wrong about money. But when you start to worship money, you are worshiping a demon. There's stuff behind the idols and you need to get away from those things. So now what Paul's going to do in this next section of, of the text is a little confusing, but stay with me here. He turns away from the temple feasts, which he has just decried as evil demon worship. And he says, Hey, flee from those things but now Paul's problem with idolatry turns uh, and differentiates between what what he has a big problem with which is idolatry and he, and he starts to differentiate between idolatry and idolaters. okay He has a big pro- Paul has a huge problem in practicing idolatry but Paul definitely does not tell us to avoid idolaters. So this is what he's going to do in verse 23. Uh, Look at this with me. Follow me here. It gets a little confusing, but you just stick with me, okay? He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, that verse is almost identical to what Paul said back in chapter 6. He said this almost exact same stuff when he was talking about sexual immorality. And if you notice in your text, that, that whole, whole all things are lawful part, that's in quotes. You see that in your text? It's in quotations. All things are lawful. Paul is actually quoting what we think is an axiom from Cor- Corinth. That That's what the Corinthians were saying. That's not the biblical idea. That's a Corinthian idea. He's saying all things are lawful. So the question is this, are all things lawful for the Christian? No, they are not. We just talked about one of them. Idolatry, not lawful, right? Participating with demons, shouldn't do that. Sexual immorality, those things are not lawful. So all things are not lawful. But Paul's saying, hey, let's, let's, let's debunk these myths that are common in the Corinthian culture where they think just because they are saved, that now they're okay, Now they're good. They're covered by Christ, and therefore they can do whatever they want because they're saved. This this is insidious stuff that works its way into church culture today, by the way. I'm saved, so therefore God's got to bring me to heaven so I can just do whatever I want. I'll tell you, that's a real deal thing for our culture as well. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. You don't get to go to the temple feasts just because you're saved. Just because you're saved, all things are not lawful. That's not how it works. And there are some things that he points out here about how um, to decide whether something is right or wrong. Some of this is review from previous weeks, but I think it's really important. He says this, first: to the first, all things are lawful. He says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. And so I'm going to interpret that as if you have a personal weakness towards something, then that thing is not helpful for you, even if it is lawful for you. Even if it is lawful, he's saying, it may not be helpful. So you should abstain from it. So here's some examples. we've already talked about some of these. But for for some of us, you might have a, a weakness when it comes to alcohol. Okay. You might have that weakness. And that, I think to Paul, would make drinking alcohol wrong for you. It's not helpful. Now, is it wrong for everyone? We talked about this a few weeks ago. No, I don't think it's wrong for everyone. But for you, if it's not helpful, you shouldn't do it. Others maybe have a weakness uh, around gambling, Okay, so gambling, okay? Uh, for you, if you have a struggle with an addiction to gambling, is it wrong for you to go to a poker night? Absolutely it is. Now, is gambling wrong? Is it, is it wrong to play poker for everybody at all times? Certainly not. Some Christians have taken that and said, no gambling. But, but for you, if you have a weakness there, then it is wrong for you. Those ones for me are not an issue, but we all have different weaknesses. That's what he's saying. Not all things are helpful. So one of the things that I'm just extra cautious about, Marcy and I have had this conversation a lot, is is watching TV or movies with kind of explicit sex in it. Like it's just, we're super cautious about that kind of stuff. And it's because I just don't want those images in my head. It's, It's not helpful for me. So we just don't watch it. Uh, it's actually also because it's super awkward. I don't know if you've done, but like sitting on the couch with your wife and then there's like a nude woman on the screen. You're like, where do I look? Do I avert my eyes? Like, do I look at her? Like, I don't know what to do with it. It's just a very bizarre. It makes me uncomfortable. But, but even more so, I don't want those images in my head for what they might lead my mind to. I'm weak. Those things are not helpful for me. And so like, I really like uh, science fiction and fantasy stuff. I'm kind of geeky that way. And when everybody was raving about Game of Thrones and I and, and was just like way into it. And I read a review and I really wanted to watch it. But it just talked about how much explicit sex and nudity was in that show. We just said, hey, no, Marcy was totally fine not watching a geeky fantasy show. But I was real. I was a little bit bummed, but I was like, I, I can't watch it. I just can't watch it because that could be a weakness for me. Some things just aren't helpful, Paul says. Then he says again, hey, all things are lawful for for me. But Paul says, but not all things build up. And this is the second group. Like he talks about your own personal weakness, but now he talks about others. He says, build up. The word we use is edify. Not all things edify. And this is where he begins to talk about Christians, other Christians. We need to look around at our Christian friends and say, am I building them up? With this activity. Not only am I weak or strong in this, but is it good for my, 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 my edification? Am I edifying other believers with this? And so we covered this a few weeks ago, but but this is where you never want to cause your brother or sister to stumble. You don't want to cause another f- believer to stumble. And so, frankly, this is why Fathom as a church, we don't drink alcohol at church functions. Is it wrong to drink alcohol? No, but is it going to edify the church? Well, there are enough Christians who struggle with this type of addiction that we've just decided, hey, we're not going to do that at official church gatherings. We're just not going to party in that way, okay? Some things aren't helpful. Some things don't edify. And then the third thing he says is that some things aren't good for my neighbor, That's what he talks about. He moves to kind of a third category away from edification of believers and onto the evangelism of unbelievers. And he goes on to illustrate. So look at verses 25 through 30. This is really a strange bit here. He says this, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Now, that's a confusing little section, but here's what I think. Let me explain it. I think this is what Paul's doing. He gives us a case example. Uh, of going over to an unbeliever's home for dinner, which again, it shows us that Paul does not say avoid idolaters. He says, flee idolatry. And so I think his second point here this morning is yes, flee idolatry. But while we flee idolatry, we are to pursue idolaters. We'll put this up on the screen. Pursue idolaters. This is a friend who is not a believer. We were going to put it up on the screen. Chad, can you put this up on the screen? Yeah, thanks. Uh, pursue idol- uh, idolaters. So what, here's what's happening. This guy, he is not a believer. The text is clear. And he thinks enough of you as a Christian, to have you in his home. Just real quick, take a quick inventory. When was the last time an unbeliever invited you over to their house? That one will stump you a little bit if you've been in church for a while. Okay? So you're invited, you're, you're close enough friends with this unbeliever that they invite you over, and, and you're at their house, and he lays food before you. And Paul says, whatever he lays before you, just eat it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry whether it was, don't be like, was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Because I can't have that. Like, just eat it. Meat is meat is meat. Do what's good for the evangelistic moment. Be in that relationship. So eat it. But he then says, this is the confusing part. He says, if the unbeliever says, oh, no, wait, hold on a second. You're a Christian. I forgot this. This meat was just sacrificed to, to Aphrodite. I am sorry. You shouldn't eat this. Essentially, what that friend is saying is, hey, you're a Christian, and this would go against your beliefs. So, so then Paul says, if he, if he brings it up, then don't eat it. Then don't eat that meat, because it could spoil your reputation with that believer. That's what he's saying. It could hinder your evangelism, your witness. Because his whole point is, hey, you do everything to pursue those idolaters. Sometimes that means eat the meat. Sometimes that means abstain from eating the meat. You got to pursue idolaters. Now, Paul's going to end this section by kind of laying out the trump card on the whole meat sacrifice to idols thing. So look at verse 31. We'll finish this up. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of of many, that they may be saved. Uh, 11 verse 1, I think, goes with this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So this is how I'm gonna sum up this whole section. Chapters eight, nine, and 10. Flee idolatry and pursue idolaters. Why? For the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. God's glory is the final litmus test. It's the, it's the, 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 vector that you run everything through, like glorify him. Are you to participate with Christ or with demons? Well, which one glorifies God? That one should be very simple to answer. Okay. Participate with Christ. If you think that participating with demons is glorifying to God, we have a whole nother conversation to have. Okay. Are, are you willing to set aside your preferences and your freedoms and your thoughts and your desires for the good of others? Well, does it glorify God? What what glorifies God? What brings the most glory to God? The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says this, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The ultimate aim of the Christian is to please God, not to please ourselves. Not to hold on to our freedoms. Not to say all things are lawful for me. Actually, our chief end is to please God. And then the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, and if you actually glorify God first, it will lead to eternal joy. If you glorify God first, then you will live a life filled with joy. You want enjoyment in your life? Glorify God we think that backwards, though, in our culture, right? We think God's kind of holding stuff back. If, if we get to go and do fun things and God is kind of like, doesn't like those things, it's because he doesn't want us to have a good time. But in fact, the opposite is true. If you want the best life, seek God's glory first, not your own. Glorify God. So then how to end this sermon, because it's a weird sermon, It's a weird passage. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, because I would have skipped probably all three of these chapters. I would have pulled some verses out of context, told you much better, more like heartfelt, warming messages, and then skipped the whole cup of demons part. Like I really just would have skipped right over that part. I don't really want to talk about it. It's just weird. So how do we end this sermon on demons? And really, how do we end this whole section on meat sacrificed to idols? Well, I want to read one verse one more time, and that'll, that'll end it for us, okay? Uh, chapter 10, verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I think that verse sums up why idolatry is such a big deal to God. Why is it a big deal? Because we worship a jealous God. Shall we stir him up to jealousy? We we worship a jealous God. Now he's not jealous of you. Like we think of being jealous of somebody, you want to be somebody else, or you want what they have. God is not jealous of us. The Bible says that he is jealous for us. We have a jealous God, and he's saying you have to pick a team. You have to pick a side. You, you, you either worship God or you worship Aphrodite. you can't do both. You either worship God or you worship a demon. You either worship God or you worship power or success or money. You either worship God or you worship yourself. You cannot drink from both cups. You cannot eat at both tables. You cannot coin a nea with God and idols. So before uh, I got married, uh, I dated other. Women, other gals. Marcy actually dated other guys. Believe it or not, I was not her first love. As much as that may hurt my heart, but like, but, but, but we 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 did. We we dated other people. We loved other other people uh, at the level that we could until we got married. And then uh, at our wedding, uh, Marcy and I made vows to each other, declaring that for the rest of our lives we would forsake all others. In traditional marital vows, you say that, forsaking all others, I commit myself, I vow myself to you. So that's what happened in marriage. Marriage is a exclusive covenant between a man and a woman. Now imagine what would happen if if after we got married, I kept a little shoebox full of mementos from all the women that I had loved before I met Marcy, Just kind of kept like one little shoebox in the corner of a closet or something that whenever I felt sad or or wanted to celebrate or like dealt with my struggles, I would pull out that box and like dredge up memories of my previous relationships. Like, can you imagine if that were the case? This is why people cut the faces of exes out of their pictures, right? I mean, it certainly would not bode well for my marriage if that's what I did. Why? Why? Because all lovers are jealous. There is a healthy kind of jealousy that is birthed in love. I am jealous for my wife because I love her. And I don't want her eyes on anyone else, and I don't want anyone else's eyes on her. I'm jealous for her. I am jealous. For my daughter. And I don't want anything to pull her away from the good and right love that a father has for his daughter. I am jealous for her. And anyone or anything that tries to turn them from my love or to harm them, I've said this before, I would fight for that. It's how jealous I am. I would fight and likely get arrested and start a prison ministry from the inside, right? That's just how it would work out. You have to pick. Our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for you because he loves you. Because he created you. Because he called you and because he saved you, he demonstrated his love for you in that. He is jealous and he will not share you with anyone or anything else. Run away. Flee from idolatry. Run away from idols and run to the one true God. That's why First Corinthians eight, nine, and ten is in our Bibles. Let's pray together. Now, Father, um These are hard texts. They're hard passages. There's a lot of context and historical context that we have to engage with. There's a lot of biblical context we have to engage with. These aren't just like easy verses to read and digest. And yet, Lord, as we really chew on these passages, what we find is a call to fidelity towards you, faithfulness to our one true God we find that that you're jealous, that you are angry even towards things that would pull us away from you. God, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters that we would flee idolatry, that we would run from the things that beckon our hearts, that call and woo to us, that, that are unfaithful, unworthy lovers, and that we would run to you And Lord, that as we look to our left and to our right, that we would see those with us who are idolaters and we would call them to the same. That we would not seek to offend them, holding up our rights, but we would lay down our rights for the good of others. And we would do all these things unto the glory of God, that we would find true lasting joy in this life and the life to come as we seek to glorify you first. Thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you for these passages, for these chapters that are seemingly irrelevant. But when we mine them a little deeper, we find true and lasting relevance for our souls. We bless you, Father. We thank you for this word and we pray it in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.